HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Food policy and culture are intimately entwined and ever-evolving. Today, we'll be discussing some of the most significant evolutions occurring in the food scene and what they spell for the future, politically or otherwise. Joining us to delve into this topic is Alan Sitzma, who's on the cutting edge of our food culture. Alan is the editor of Grub Street, New York Magazine's James Beard award-winning site devoted to food and restaurants. And he previously served as an editor at both Food Network Magazine and Gourmet. Alan is also a longtime friend of mine and typically the only person louder than me at a dinner party, which is impressive. When I'm doing my job. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Alan. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. I'm really excited. Of course. It's my pleasure. So we go way back. Way back. Like so far back. Very far back. (laughs) To high school back. Indeed. Both Michiganders. <laughs> we met a long time ago. We did. We did. So this could be this could be interesting. <laughs> we'll see. It's all coming full circle. <laughs> okay, Alan, let's 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 go way back. You you got into food almost immediately after college, right? And and it was at a time when food wasn't as as popular. So what kind of decided? What you know? What made you decide to get into food? What what drew you to the field? Uh, well, uh, I mean, I guess it kind of. I went to college in Boston, and I think it just sort of started as a kind of a, an outlet, you know, just something fun to do, go to restaurants and hang out. And I think I just, I, I think I just started doing that uh, maybe a little bit before other people. But that kind of evolved. I moved to New York. Obviously, there are more restaurants here than anywhere else. It's amazing. It was a time I kind of I moved here uh, right around 2002. So there were a lot of, like, very cutting-edge restaurants happening. There was a lot going on. And then that just turned into going to culinary school, 
uh, working at a couple of places after culinary school, realizing that I hated being in restaurants <laughs> just because it was like 13 hours a day, six days a week, killing yourself in the kitchen. And uh, I can't just, imagine you on the line. I just can't. It just wasn't really for me. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, I got really lucky. Uh, I was able to intern at a couple of food magazines and uh, got a job doing that and writing about food and talking about food, which was, as it turned out, what I really enjoyed doing anyway. So that was it. And then it all kind of went from there. So it wasn't the dorm food at Cranbrook that really inspired you. Uh, you, at at the boarding school? At the that, boarding that, school. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, it, you know, I, I didn't see a lot of culinary innovation there, as I recall. <laughs> it was a long time ago, so yeah. I might be wrong. But it, it wasn't that that really inspired it. I do think with restaurants, what drew me initially was that it is this world where these people, especially the chefs and the owners, they're trying to do a lot of times these very creative kind of boundary pushing things. But at the same time, diners are very fickle and they have to make money. And it, it's just that, that balance Constant and that kind balance. of like... Yeah, that that fight that they're always kind of pushing towards that I find really interesting. So food journalism, at least in my opinion, used to only be about like restaurant reviews and kind of featuring more complicated recipes. Um, Do you think that this has changed or is there a longer tradition of more policy, food policy in in writing? Uh, I mean, I think that really, you know, when you talk about food media and you talk about kind of the mainstream outlets like Grub Street, but even like Bon Appetit or Food and Wine, Lucky Peach, you're talking about people covering food as and like restaurants as cultural phenomena, right? Mm-hmm. So you're talking about eating as entertainment more so than just sustenance. But I think that in that way, right now, probably the last, you know, 10, 15 years, there's a lot more emphasis on mindful eating and being kind of aware of the impact that you're having as you're doing this. Um, so I do think that they're, they're intertwined now. I, I mean, I don't think that people sitting down, like for example, at Roberta's where we are, are necessarily concerned about, you know, where, you know, the impact that the lettuce in their salad is having. But I do think that, that people are a lot more aware of it than they have been in the past. And so it kind of goes hand in hand with like, yes, you're going out to have fun or you're cooking to have fun and it's, it's an activity that you're doing, but it's also something that you are trying to be a good steward of the land while you're doing it to some extent. Do you think that um, publications that like the New York Times food section should discuss policy? And do you think it's like, do they have the responsibility to their eaters and their readers uh, to, to kind of make those connections to, to, I guess, increase exposure to the broader food system? Well, yeah. I mean, you mentioned the New York Times. I think that they actually have a pretty long history of doing that. You know, Mark Bittman had a column for a long time that focused on these issues. And uh, they'll have, you know, other stories that do that. I think, you know, as a as an editor, I can't speak to them or to the responsibility. I think you have a responsibility to the readers. You have to inform them in a way. But you also are very aware of what people are responding to, what people are reading. And, you know, there's a Push and pull there. So you don't see it as like you don't have readers on your site because Grub Street's been also covering policy for how how long now? Policy issues. Well, I don't know that I would say we like go really deep on policy. I, think, I mean, you cut. OK, so you cover, let's say, the sodium announcement. Recently, sure. New York Times is going to start. They're allowed to start or the, New York is allowed to start posting um, sodium uh, content, the right. sodium content on menus you cover. Yeah, I feel like you cover a lot of a lot of stuff. I mean, we cover what when we cover these issues, it tends to be how it affects our readers as diners and the impact that that's going to have on their day to some extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, we try to have fun with it. Also, we we're not going to come down very strongly on the salt warnings, for example, right. one way or the other. Um, but you don't have a stake in the GMO labeling claim, is what you're trying to say. I, you know, <laughs> as much as I try to, um, <laughs> I don't find myself very compelled one way or the other. Um, but I mean, it is something that we're aware of, and if there is something that's that, that we think is really going to affect our readers, who are largely interested in learning about where to go eat at restaurants. You know, we're definitely going to talk about that. So there's no doubt that food's become more of a thing in the past, you know, 10, 20 years. And it's sensationalized and celebrated um, more so than I think it, it ever has been. And and part of this is it's it's also become more accessible to kind of a broader audience of people. Um, so I'm thinking people outside of your typical urban areas where you would kind of expect to see um, a lot of excitement around restaurants and food. Um so, but now we also have like you know kind of things in, in our culture and on TV like the five ingredient fix or ten minute mains, and it's kind of um, a way to, to more appear more broadly to to I think uh, a lot of other people who might be a little intimidated um, as opposed to kind of like the Julia Child's French technique style of, of food preparation that I think that was more common a lot of years ago. Do you think that this shift is ultimately like a good thing or do you think it's something, are we kind of getting away from uh, we, we like cheap, like making the cult- culture of around food a little bit cheaper or too accessible? Uh, no, I mean, I think that everybody, I think, you know, there's a, a really wide range of outlets, right? And they're talking to a lot of different kinds of people. The readers that we talked to when I worked at Food Network Magazine, for example, are very different than the readers that we talked to at Grub Street. But at the end of the day, what you're really trying to do is is give your opinion and inform people and, you know, help them to some extent eat better. So whether you're, you know, a working father who's trying to get dinner on the table for his kids on a Tuesday at six o'clock and, you know, you're harried and you're trying to do the best you can with the time that you have, mm-hmm. or you're a banker, you know, on Wall Street who's looking for, you know, an amazing new sushi restaurant. At the end of the day, it's like it's like you're trying to just help people sort of, you know, through your own expertise sort of, I don't want to say elevate because that's Plug not in. really the right word. But, yeah, just sort of improve, you know, make the most of whatever their available time and, you know, resources are to help, you know, make what they're eating a little better or more interesting. Um, so it has been said about you that you have an almost encyclopedic knowledge of restaurants, the restaurant industry. And recently you covered the disastrous per se review by Pete Wells in the Times. Um, and you wrote that it was a nail in the coffin for fine dining and something that you had been predicting for years. So I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit more about what this review says about people's food preferences more more broadly. Well, I don't think that it's a nail in the coffin of like fine dining. I think it's a certain type of restaurant. And that is the kind of restaurant that is, you know, has traditionally been geared towards the Michelin approved style of dining. These like 12-ish course tasting menus that cost, you know, $200, $300 a person. It's lots of luxury ingredients. It's, you know, white tablecloths. It's polished service where all of the dishes come out at the same time and they lift off the you know, domes. Yeah, I, think, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you like to be pampered. We know this. We know this. But no I, shame. Think that, I think that, you know, with per se, really, that review, 
I don't want to speak for Pete Wells, but in the reading of that review, it hinged on this idea of, you know, you're paying a lot of money for this experience and the experience that you're getting isn't really up to snuff with how much it costs. I think he called it, I don't remember the exact line, but he called it basically like one of the first worst food values in the city. And there are places, you know, like 11 Madison Park comes to mind where you're paying probably almost as much as you are per se. But the experience that you're getting doesn't make you feel like you're getting nickel and dimed at every turn. Whereas, per se, there were all these supplementary charges on the menu. And, you know, you can't get a glass of wine for less than, like, $30 or whatever. Yeah. I, I made that number up. But, right. you know, something like that. And so, you know, you have to make, you know, as an owner, as a chef, you have to make diners feel like they're getting something new. But it's also really hard to do that. I think in the piece that I wrote about the review it's like you have to you know people have to feel so immediately comfortable and they have to feel like they're getting everything that they possibly want and then you also have to surprise them a little bit and it's like the precision that you have to do and you know the army of people that you have to get all moving in the same direction to make this happen for you know how many people eat it per se a night like 40 people 60 people i don't know like it's just it's it's incredibly difficult and i think that the reason why i said was that nail and the coffin of fine dining is that as an owner or chef you know if you're young and you're starting out the idea of trying to open a restaurant like that it it doesn't make a lot of sense when you can open a much smaller place you know a place that's more geared towards a casual kind of dining a place where you know your build out is going to be a lot less uh you know your service costs are going to be a lot less your food costs are going to be a lot less but then people are just as happy and you know they're having a nice time and you can still kind of get away with experimenting and doing some cool stuff so you don't think that it's like we're moving towards a more co- cost-conscious kind of dining-out model? I think a lot of people, a lot of chefs and owners have shown that there is a way to open a really cutting-edge, ambitious, interesting restaurant where it doesn't cost $350 a person to eat there. So, you know, as as a diner, it's like you're just looking for different experiences. There, you, You're going to want to run the whole gamut, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to want a special occasion place, and you're going to want a place that just does, like, you know, simple, awesome, cool food that you can go to. That's not going to change. But, you know, at the same time, the restaurants at the lower end are still – that's where it's really interesting right now and really exciting because that's where I think a lot of the innovation is happening. Tell me. Tell me. I'm ready. Um, well, where? I mean, what's where is the innovation happening? And and like, what are some of your favorite spots right now that are a little bit more approachable? Favorite restaurants right now? Well, I feel like I te- I feel like I text you this question every week. By the way, like, it's where basically I go? like yeah. I mean, or I should just read your blog. Yeah, yeah. We do. <laughs> I do spend all day, basically every day, thinking about how to let people know where they should eat and what restaurants are good right now. And then you do text me and it's like, well, I feel like nine hours of my life are gone. Um, No, I don't know. Uh, You know, I mean, you think about a restaurant like Estella and those guys just opened a new place this week. Um, But like Estella is like you go there and you're seeing something at least new to New York and you're seeing a point of view. You're seeing food that is, you know, very thoughtful, Mm -hmm. um, you know, really technically very well done. But, you know, it's just a simpler, more casual place. You're getting wine that is the exact same wine. You know, the, one of the co-owners, he used to work at uh, Stone Barns, Blue Hill Stone Barns, mm-hmm. one of the nicest restaurants in the greater New York area. Um, so, you know, the, the wines that you're getting and the wine service that you're getting is displaying a lot of the same things that you would get at an ultra-luxurious restaurant. But you're right. instead, you're in this, like, bistro above a dive bar 
mm-hmm. and you're having this like amazing experience that you know I don't think you could really get away with a lot of those dishes either if you were charging you know three hundred dollars a person because it, you know it would be off putting to people and they would think you know where is my value foie gras and caviar why am I getting you know these dumplings topped with shaved raw mushrooms whereas there it's I just this, like it's, yeah. it's unbelievable. It's, it's one unbelievable. of my favorite things. All right. So, you know, you're seeing that kind of, you know, experience growing. And I think people are really drawn to that a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so speaking of fads, what are some of the, what are some of the kind of um, food fads, food fads coming down the pike that you see uh, that are gaining popularity right now? And, uh, and what are some of the funkiest ones that you're like, what? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know, if I, I don't know if I want to. D- well, you know, one thing that you're seeing is a lot of like, maybe not gimmick food, but you're seeing Instagram bait, right? You're seeing a lot of chefs and owners engineer dishes and engineer things that are only designed to, you know, become Instagram trophies. So people will wait in line forever for like a really crazy looking milkshake or like rainbow colored bagels, for example. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know that people are necessarily wanting to eat these things. They just want to like, it's like a trophy that you've got. That like you, I did that. I ate that. I did that. That was awesome. Now it's on my Instagram feed. Yeah. yeah. I think it is to a certain extent, the Cronaut effect. Um, I don't know what else is happening. Big push into vegan cuisine, which I mm. have to say, I didn't, I'm surprised that it pushed as far as it did. You know, you walk by, there's a restaurant uh, in Greenwich Village called By Chloe, mm-hmm. which is a sort of a vegan cafe. It's like, a you know, there's a counter. Uh, they have a lot of veggie burgers. They have, you know, like uh, like chia pudding. They have, I'm yeah. trying to think of everything. <laughs> that, just, that just doesn't sound good to it me. It has all of that stuff, you know, coconut water and little branded coconuts. Um, and you walk by, you know, Tuesday at two o'clock in the afternoon, lines are spilling out. For a vegan food restaurant? Well, for a restaurant that, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's a cool cafe, but it's crowded. I don't know. I went there uh, for a story that we did on Grub Street and it was just like, it was just like, you're getting elbowed in. It's just people are mm-hmm. jammed in there. And it's sort of surprising the appeal of that uh, kind of thing. I think I, it's just getting like, like people are just, that is a much more casual environment. I think people have been sort of watching things trend more casually. I, I guess I just said it. Yeah. But, you know, people always draw the comparison between like a restaurant like Kraft or a restaurant like Momofuku Sambar where David Chang, mm-hmm. you know, pioneered the bar service or a restaurant like Roberta's, which is in an old warehouse in Bushwick where we are mm-hmm. and, you know, doing really high end food. And now it's, you know, everybody's talking about the fast, casual experience. Everybody wants to do, you know, the chef version of like a Chipotle or a Five Guys or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you're starting to see that. And then combined with the vegan thing, you're starting to see a lot of chefs do cool vegan things in like a kind of, you know, where you just line up where it's like a fast food model. But it's yeah. like really kind of thoughtful food that you're getting as a result. That to me speaks to, I mean, I think that there's been a broader trend moving towards kind of 
vegetarian fare. We've seen a lot of, I've read a lot of articles about how vegetables are, they're so hot right now. Right. right. <laughs> like they just, you know, like they were just invented, but no, but they're, they're, they're moving to the center of the plate. And, and, um, I think uh, I'm curious to know what you think it seems, what it says about people's food values. I mean, certainly in the policy space, we're also starting to see some movement towards, um, an effort to kind of curb meat consumption because of its environmental effects. Um, and maybe some can argue health effects, but, um, yeah. What do you, what do you think that, you know, that, 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 means i mean i do think that the environmental aspect of it to some extent plays a part um you know you have people like michael pollan and dan barber you know praising vegetables and talking about you know how to be more thoughtful about it and that definitely trickles out into kind of the mainstream thinking um i think it doesn't help that like a lot of chefs and food writers and food critics were talking about how they have the gout during the, like the great pork belly and steak age. You know, I think that it became very apparent that the health effects of this kind of food, even if it was, you know, humanely sourced and the pigs were lovingly raised before they turn, were turned into It'll sausage. Still it's still really bad for arteries. you. Yeah. It's yeah. still really bad for you. And then the other thing is that this is sort of a slightly more cynical way of thinking about it. But like you? vegetables, a vegetables cynic? are like a lot cheaper to buy than proteins for right. uh, for chefs and restaurants. And so, you know, if you can get someone to pay fourteen dollars for carrot tartare as opposed to you know fourteen dollars for steak tartare, and your food costs are a lot lower, and you get to display a little bit more creativity, that really helps the bottom line. And so, as a you know a chef, as an owner. It probably it, it helps you if people are engaged in this and are interested in this. So you're going to do what you can to kind of foment that idea. I think that seems kind of like a win-win to me. I don't know. I mean, you know, people are eating more vegetables, which we don't, as a culture, eat nearly enough of. Yeah, I mean, less I think environmental it's, footprint. I think it's like it's absolutely like this idea of eating like a protein with like a vegetable on the side and a starch on the plate is like very antiquated. I don't think anybody to, of a certain age really approaches a meal that way anymore. I mean, right. there's so many, like, especially at a restaurant, you want to get as many things as you can. So you want to see these kind of small creations. You want to be trying a bunch of different things. And so the idea that it has to be focused around some hunk of meat is <laughs> just really out of touch and out of date. And, and, you know, I think chefs have moved away from that a lot using either meat as like a seasoning, you know, you're seeing a lot of that too. Like, you know, little bits of blood sausage studded around the plate that yeah. are, you know, doing a lot to amplify, you know, the eggplant or the carrot or the whatever. That's sort of the main identity. But, you know, they do become a lot more beautiful, a lot more artful as a result too. Okay. All right. We're going to take a quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. And we'll be back in a minute with the second half of our show. Michael Sinatra, Public Relations Director for Whole Foods Market here in the Northeast region. I'm known for eating. <laughs> it's funny because, you know, I work with a lot of people in really interesting positions. So someone like Ellie, our local forager, I mean, she's the local forager. She goes out and works with these great artisanal businesses. And But it's me who she likes to tote along to, like, help her taste a lot of stuff. And, and our regional president will always grab me when there's a new vendor in doing a tasting. And a lot of our product teams will grab me because I just have a... 
incredible passion for food. I, I've always loved to eat. I come from a big family of eaters. And I think my cultural backgrounds about food, the history of my family dates back to food businesses in the past, all kinds of different things. So I, I was just, I was born to eat. So. This has been a message from our proud partner, Whole Foods Brooklyn. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Alan Sitzma from Grub Street about the intersection of food, media, and culture and policy. Um, let's talk about tipping, Alan. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> um, so you, as you covered last fall, um, Danny Myers uh, made a decision to stop tipping in his restaurant. How will this change affect the industry? Well, I think it's more of a reaction than it is like... Uh, you know, I mean, the reason that it's not just Danny Meyer, you've seen a lot of people do this. And for years, people have been talking about it. You know, from a diner standpoint, it feels like a very old fashioned custom that is maybe rooted in this like weird sort of server uh, diner dynamic that, you know, it's this strange power dynamic that I think it's probably time to eliminate. And, uh, you know, staffers kind of hate it because like you're not making a ton of money and then you're kind of beholden on these on you know the public's whims to pay your rent so from that standpoint but also what happened was that all of these laws came into place where people are going to start making a lot more money working in restaurants and Mm -hmm. so owners whose profit margins are pretty thin to begin with have to figure out how they can increase you know their wages of their employees while at the same time you know still make money so like the big the big catalyst for this was actually the the fast food minimum wage. So right. the fight for fifteen. See, you do cover policy stuff. <laughs> well, yeah. So, like, you know, if you're a young cook, right, and you can go and work at a restaurant in the city, a nice casual bistro, but like a hot bistro, mm-hmm. you're gonna make like, you know nothing like whatever six like less if you work in the kitchen right you're probably working for free to some extent um and then you're gonna make like whatever the minimum wage is uh or you can go work at mcdonald's and make like 12 dollars an hour it's like you know the owners of these restaurants had to figure out a way to compete with that and so the problem with tipped wages is that the tips can only go to the service staff there's a very specific group of the workers who are all interacting with people in the dining room that get the tips and so the people in the kitchen and the people in the dining room are the disparity between their wages is huge right so owners really had to figure out a way to raise the kitchen wages and so when you eliminate tips and it all just becomes this fee then everyone's working on hourly wages you can kind of distribute things a little more evenly and i think that the thing that danny meyer really did was and this was smart i mean he talked about it making this move you know because of the welfare of his employees he wants to make sure that you know people can actually live in the city where they work uh and you know as he is a very influential restaurateur you see a lot of people looking towards him and you know he you know if i run like a neighborhood bistro in brooklyn and i decide i'm gonna go tip free i don't get to go on the today show or get written about in the new york times and get to tell the world that right. i'm doing this whereas Danny Meyer could and so it makes it easier to shift diner habits. As a result, they come in, they think, okay, not tipping is really a thing. Right. So that the smaller restaurant can say, well, yeah, we're doing this also. 
and kind of use the same model that I think Danny Meyer's trying. So it's, it's also a way to retain or to attract and retain really good kitchen talent, right? I think that's absolutely what it is. I mean, it's a way to not just kitchen talent, but, you know, I mean, if the front of the house, the managers and the captains and the servers are all making about the same amount of money that they would anyway, Mm -hmm. then I think that they're, that's, that's the thing that kind of remains to be seen. I think especially like bartenders, they make a ton of money relative to the rest of the staff. Right. Um, And that would, and that would change. Um, And Danny, Danny, yeah, if a a restaurant has no tips, then then they're on an hourly wage, it gets raised up. And so, um, you know, if they can make the same amount of money, they're the ones who are most scared because it's going to affect them the most. I mean, I think if you're a cook and you're on the line and all of a sudden you make twice as much money as you made before, that's like, nobody's going to be unhappy about that. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, well, speaking of, of chefs and cooks, we're kind of starting to see some fine dining chefs in particular seeing their roles evolve into uncharted territories. So they're joining startups, as was recently announced, I don't know, this this week. Um, Blue Apron is getting a new a new chef from, was it Franny's? Yeah. And um, they're talking food policy, um, you know, more than ever. I'm thinking about Tom Colicchio. Um, why do you think that this is happening? Uh, you know, I mean, you mentioned uh, Jonathan Adler. That's the name of the chef who is going to Blue Apron from Franny's, which is a pizza place here in Brooklyn. Uh, a very high-end, thoughtful pizza place. But, you know, he, he worked with Dan Barber and... Uh, he worked at per se and so he's been kind of at the forefront of this and i think when you're talking to chefs what's interesting is that you see them say you know farm to table as a concept is you know interesting and fun but it doesn't really work in terms of affecting change among the larger dining public i mean you have this one-to-one relationship is between you know the chef and the farmer and it works for them and everybody works but that's a very small thing and it's not going to create any kind of larger you know, policy change or, you know, even a pal change. So what a lot of these startups are doing as startups tend to do when they have this change the world mentality uh, is, you know, say, you know, Blue Apron can say, look, we feed, you know, thousands, if not millions of people all over the country every day with our meal delivery service. Uh, We can apply what you've been doing at your one restaurant in a much larger way and really kind of approach this in a different way and make people think like, okay, I think the example that Jonathan Nadler gave me when I was talking to him was like dandelion greens. Like, mm-hmm. how do you get people to think like, whoa, dandelion greens are kind of delicious and I'm going to eat these and it's you know going to be good for the environment, but that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it because I can like saute them with olive oil and garlic and it's going to be delicious and I'm going to love them mm-hmm. the same way you would get at a restaurant. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, sorry, I'm just thinking dandelion greens and I'm just, I'm, I just went to my, in my own head like the last time I had them and loved them. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's like it's like when you go to a restaurant, you can see something and you can think like I just had. But I was, I, but yeah, but I okay. So sorry, so sorry, not to cut you off, but let me cut you off. But like I was at I was at a Patali restaurant and we ordered dandelion greens and I was like, ugh. And then I had them because they were probably doused in olive oil and like parmesan and I was like, these are delicious. But yet I don't necessarily seek them out at the farmers market or you know at the grocery store. But something like Blue Apron. Right. I think that what a lot of the policy-minded chefs, and you mentioned Tom Colicchio, Dan Barber's one, mm-hmm. I think what they've decided needs to happen is that it's not just about, okay, I mean, you know, now it's pervasive, this idea of, like, if you go to a restaurant, you know that the chef is probably sourcing their ingredients from, you know, the best farmers that they can. They're getting the best stuff that they can. They're trying to be, 
you know, like I said earlier, good stewards of the land while they do it. Mm -hmm. And now it's about sort of changing diners' palates, right? And not just diners, but like home cooks and people who go to restaurants are used to that. You can see, you know, a dish of like lentils and radishes as an appetizer and not be thinking like, well, that's kind of weird. You know, you're just used to it. It is what it is. It's good for the environment. It's good for you. Blah, blah, blah. And now it's like now they need a larger forum to really convince more people that this is the right thing to do. So you're seeing, you know, like Dan Barber is writing books about this. And you have Michael Pollan, who's not a chef, but is really working towards the same goal. Bitman and Bitman going to Purple Carrot, um, which is a vegan meal delivery startup. Uh, And also, you know, if you're a chef and you're going from a restaurant to a corporate job, also you know little bit you get, you get to push your ideas on a larger audience but then you also get like nicer hours you get maybe a little more money you get to maybe see your family a little <laughs> bit more often so it's it's a good thing for them as well but yeah i mean i think it's just about having a larger forum for you know being able to express your views so food fraud has been in the news since pretty much forever we've we've seen it with olive oil wine recently parmesan um, and it also recently came to the fore, a f- you know, a few months ago, um, with the case of the Mass Brothers, who it came to light were using low-quality melted chocolate, um, at least in the beginning uh, of their of their organization, their their company, um, in their supposedly bean-to-bar recipe, and people were so mad about this like i i I was surprised at the kind of outrage and i'm i'm wondering if you were also and if you think that this um fury was was uh warranted uh yeah i mean the fury of the hipster population i guess you know (laughs) i mean it's like with math math brothers it's like so what happened was you know a blogger uh, who's based in Dallas, I think, somewhere in Texas. Mm-hmm. Anyway, someone who follows Dallas. the chocolate industry very closely, that the, like high-end chocolate. He wrote a series of blog posts that basically alleged that the Mass Brothers had used industrial chocolate in their very early goings of their business, um, which is kind of a t- standard practice in the industry. But it was really at odds with their brand of being, you know, so artisanal and everything's handcrafted and every single bean we lovingly caress and before we turn it into a chocolate bar and blah 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 i mean this was like years ago it's not like anything that they're selling right is like lies anything but anything but that now it's also kind of this reaction i think that they, they have always sort of been it, it was an issue where the timing was right i mean they've always sort of been the poster child for the company's been the poster child for the artisanal Brooklyn movement. I mean, they have the beards. Whenever we talk about like bearded Brooklyn artisans, right. they're like, they're talking about these guys. Yeah. And so, you know, the idea that the artisanal movement was built on a foundation of lies, I think was just so sensational that people loved it. Um, but like, you know, I mean, the chocolate bars are what they are. They haven't changed. They're not any different. Uh, you still see them. I have, two bars in my refrigerator I, I right ate now, one last night yeah. yeah i did <laughs> um the paper is still amazing yeah. they got the nine dollars amazing the best packaging um <laughs> Me too. and so you know was it warranted no i think i mean it was a silly thing i mean we're tech at the end of the day we're talking about like is nine dollar chocolate as like as wholesome as it's been made as it's been promised to you that has to be like a, a first right i mean that that in and of itself i think is an indication of the the big changes that we've seen well, yeah. I mean, anytime you have someone who is building their reputation so strongly on this one ideal, 
and then turns out that something has gone against that ideal, then you sort of start to question their motives and it becomes a little bit clearer that maybe like the purity of the product surprise isn't the end goal of this business that really cares about profit. We also live in a world where transparency is is um, much easier to come by, I think. To a certain days. extent. You know, the Mass Brothers, it just kind of bugged me because we asked them after this thing came out. You know, we said, hey, you know, do you want to respond to this? And they just said, no, no, we've always done it. And they were just straight up lying to us. Ooh. I know. Come on, Mass Brothers. Not cool. Come on, Mass come Brothers. Come on. Well, I mean, you still have their chocolate in your fridge, though. <laughs> it was a gift. <laughs> Okay, speaking of food fraud, um, people are demanding, I mean, as we were covering, more information about their food than ever. Um, and calorie counts on menus, in particular, um, have been in the headlines and at the federal level recently. What do you think about them? Yay or nay? I... And by the way, did you just check your watch? It's an old watch, so I actually wound it because it loses okay. time from okay. 1943. Yes. But no, because there's a huge clock right in front of me. Why would I check my watch? Uh, I'm here. I'm here just to talk. I'm okay, here for you. Good, so anyway, good. what was the question? The question was, what do you think about about um, calorie labeling on menus? Uh, you know, I think that it's sort of silly. Um, really? Study? Well, you know, there have been some studies that have proven that it doesn't really change consumer behavior. There have been studies proving that it does also. Yeah, you can read these things to however you want. But the fact that it's not really definitive one way or the other, to me, I think is an indication that it's not necessarily something that is going to make a huge impact i think people see this stuff if you want to eat a burrito at chipotle you're gonna like trick yourself into thinking that it's good that <laughs> it's, it's good like, this will be the like only meal i eat for this gut week bomb. so it's yeah. fine um, i'm never gonna eat again after this you know i think that just being generally aware of what you're eating is something that's really not that difficult to do um having like when you get to the point where you have salt warnings and calorie warnings and you know soda bans and all this stuff and it's like you have easy all these on the little... soda bans buddy it was it was a restriction it was a portion size <laughs> restriction like all of these like icons next to like every little thing you're going to order it's like it's creating this sort of atmosphere where like food is the enemy where it's not the enemy it's just like eating a 1500 calorie burrito is maybe not the best thing you can do for yourself and so you kind of just have to like it, it's like once you see like what actually healthy eating looks like you you realize all the little kind of mental tricks that you've been playing on yourself i think and you just are like what was i doing and i don't know that a little icon of a salt shaker and like 700 calories is necessarily the thing that's going to make people aware that like maybe don't eat you know a cheeseburger every day for lunch right so you think information overload i just we're, think you kind of you getting... can block it out yeah. It's like, you know, parental warnings and stuff. It's like, it just doesn't, you just, okay, who cares? It's there. I don't care. <laughs> All right. Um, I think that we're going to, I think we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank my guest, Alan Sitzma, so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, our show is produced by my brilliant co-host, Kim Kessler, and myself, and our wonderful intern is Austin Brunierski. Show music is by the very talented Tim Archer, and I want to thank our sponsors, as well as our new show engineer, David Tatashore. <laughs> the show is available on Heritage Radio Network's website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you so much for listening.
listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 non-profit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 